So in chapter 6, we found God bringing his own people to court for violating their covenant agreements. And God uh, showed himself, he defended himself by showing his faithfulness from uh, bringing them out of Egypt and uh, directing them all the way to the promised land. And yet, sadly, Israel's, uh, Israel seems to have been starting to deal with God transactionally. They'll offer uh, sacrifices to appease God instead of inter interacting with him worshipfully and doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with him. And so this was evident through their unjust and dishonest practices with one another and so rightly bring uh, judgment upon themselves. And so it's with that background that we move to chapter 7, which begins with Micah's lament over the state, uh, or the, the, the state of Judah. And so he begins in verse 1. It says, What misery is mine? I am like the one who gathers summer fruit at the, at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. The day God visits you has come. The day your watchmen, or the day your watchmen sound the alarm, the alarm. Now is the time of your confusion. And so like the, the emptiness of the fields and orchards after harvest, Micah looks out through the land, and he's unable to find any godly or, or, or faithful people. And so akin to, to uh, Elijah during the evil reign of Ahab and Jezebel, Micah feels the loneliness, the faithfulness uh, amid a depraved people. And so the lament uh, could be during the godless reign of Ahaz, a time of great oppression and injustice, um, particularly by those in power. And so we see his references here to the corruption in the higher uh, uh, places of society, uh, mirroring what he talked about in chapters 2 and 3. However, if this, is, uh, if this chapter is, is placed, as we talked about last week, during the, uh, a time of co-regency, uh, with Manasseh and Hezekiah, uh, at, or, so after the, the reforms of Hezekiah, and now with the evil of Manasseh coming to fruition, uh, Micah's misery may be compounded or increased by a sense of failure uh, due to the fact that so many seem to have not listened to his message. Uh, the faithful during Hezekiah have perished, and so Micah laments. And so he, he reveals more of what's kind of going on in the society around him. And so in, instead of desiring godliness and faithfulness, Micah reveals the nature of Judah's wickedness in verse 2. It's planned out, once again, kind of echoing what we saw in, in chapter 2 and 3. It's planned out. There's this premeditation. It's pervasive. He says, everyone. And it's violent. Uh, as he says, everyone lies and waits. There's a premeditation to shed blood. And so Micah notes that uh, they do not merely do evil, but they are also skilled at it. They are good at, at uh, evil. Uh, the NET translates the beginning of verse 3 as, they are determined to be experts at doing evil. And particularly grievous in this corruption uh, are those who are meant to be exemplars and administrators of justice. Judges and civil leaders are, are explicitly commanded to lead in justice, according to Deuteronomy 16, 18, 20, 18 to 20. 
Uh, it says, Appoint judges and officials for your tribes in all the towns the Lord has given you. They are to judge the people with righteous judgment. Do not deny justice or show, show partiality to anyone. Do not accept a bribe, for it blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Pursue justice and justice alone, so that you will live and possess the land the Lord is giving you. And then in the very next chapter, Israel's king is, is uh, singled out. He is to write down the law by hand. And it goes on to say, it must be with you, or it must be with him constantly, and he must read it as long as he lives, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and observe all the words of his law and these statutes and carry them out. Then he will not exalt himself above his fellow citizens or turn, the commandment, or turn from the commandments to the right or left, and he and his descendants will enjoy many years ruling over the kingdom, of, or kingdom in Israel. And so when Micah tells us that the judges, the rulers, the powerful, all plot for their own uh, desires, it's clear that they have rejected the law of God. And the same standard applies to all authority today, from, from politicians to, to parents. All authority is delegated from God and to be used accordingly, according to his precepts. And this is a fact that we kind of touched on last week, that it's recognized, at least in writing, in the Canadian Constitution, which notes that we are a country under, quote, the supremacy of God. And so the ultimate standard of righteousness is not the popular will of the people, man's laws, or cultural norms, but in fact the decrees of God. And so Micah, as a, prophet, a prophetic watchman for Israel, issues a final warning that the divine judgment is now here, and confusion will be upon them. Now, kind of ironically, uh, Micah doesn't really offer any confusion or any clarity on what he means by this confusion, but I think uh, he, he points out that this, uh, I think as we go on, you'll see that, uh, actually, I'm thinking of the next passage going on, um, but by this com uh, confusion, only that, that Judah's behavior has been, uh, judgment has been made certain. So we're not sure what he means by this confusion, but he's, it's the certainty of this confusion, whatever this judgment is, is now upon them for their, for their uh, evil deeds. And so both passages in Deuteronomy uh, connect Judah's, uh, Judah's commitment to God's commands to their possession and rule of the land. So as long as they were are faithful to God's command, possession they would possess and rule over the land that God had given them. And so Micah may have this promised curse of Deuteronomy 28, 28, 20 in mind. Uh, it says, The Lord will send on you curses, confusions, and rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to a sudden ruin because of the evil you are doing in forsaking him. And once again, that's Deuteronomy 28, 20. So uh, no good will come to those who practice evil and abandon God. So Micah com continues his lament and reveals the depravity of Judah's society in the next couple of verses. He says, Do not rely on a friend. Do not trust a companion. Do not even share secrets with the one who lies in your arms. For a son thinks his father a fool. A daughter challenges his mother or her mother. A, and a daughter-in-law her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are his own servants. So not only... Can one not trust the leadership of the nation? But Micah warns against even trusting one's neighbors, friends, or even spouse. And so there's this need, this need for self-censorship self is due to the erosion of these basic relationships. 
sons and daughters are willing to betray and rise up against parents, servants against masters. Um, Micah seems to be seems to reason that that if one cannot even trust the, the cohesion and proper ordering of the relationships within the household, how can one? Uh, there's little hope for the relationships beyond the household, the lesser uh, relationships. And it's this ordering of relationship that, relationships uh, that's, that appear to be at the heart of uh, Jesus' use of this verse in Matthew 10:35 and 36. Um, it's in the context of him sending out his disciples that he warns them uh, in verse 34. It says, that, Do not suppose I have come to bring peace to the earth. I, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And then, then uh, preceding that, he quotes Matthew 7, 5, and 6. And then he provides his own explanation in verse 37, back in Matthew 10. He says, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so as significant as the bonds, or the family bonds are, Jesus, Jesus uses Micah's own words to show that the primary relationship must be with him. So having uh, expressed his sorrow at the state of Judah, Micah refocuses his gaze in verse 7. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And so, the, once again, the frequent role of the Old Testament prophets was as watchmen, the, the kind of the person positioned uh, on top of the walls to sound the alarm should an enemy or a coming disaster be spotted. And so he's, he's warned Jerusalem of this disaster coming. God's judgment is now certain to come upon them. And having fulfilled that role, now Micah shifts his focus. He begins his watch again, but this time uh, it's in hopeful expectation of God's salvation. He does not allow himself to fixate on the depravity around him, to become trapped in the, in the resulting despair, but finds hope in the, in, in the last relationship. Uh, it seems he can trust. He, needs, uh, he does not need to guard his words with God, and uh, God will hear him and respond. There is no, um, he does not caution anyone against talking to God, whereas he had with the other, with the other relationships. God is still one he can turn to, even in the midst of the despair and depravity around him. And Micah goes on to con uh, continue to express his confidence in the God of his salvation in chapter in verse 8. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I stand up. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I must endure the Lord's rage until he champions my cause and establishes justice for me. He will bring... He will, bring into the, he will bring me into the light. I will see his salvation. Then my enemy will see, and she will, be, and she will be covered with shame. The one who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look at her in triumph. At, the, at that time, she will be trampled like mud in the streets. So Micah here shifts, I, I think you can see, from the role of watchman to really intercessor. He seems to be now speaking on behalf of all Judah. And I think this will become clear uh, in, the next, in the next couple of verses um, where he talks about this, this salvation, this restoration, applying to all of Judah and not just to himself. But as his role of intercessor, he's, he's, he's following in a line uh, of many prophets and God, or men of God, from Abraham and Moses uh, to Amos, as we saw in his, in his writings, Ezra, and ultimately, uh, obviously, in Christ himself, the one who still intercedes for us. And so here Micah 
steps into the gap and pleads with God for the benefit and salvation of his, uh, of his people, of God's people. And so Micah recognizes Judah's fallenness, that they reside in darkness, and Micah confesses the sinfulness of Judah that has duly brought God's rage upon them. And so it's in this state that, God's, or that uh, the enemy of God's people celebrates and gloats over their misery. They mock Judah's God as if, uh, as if he were lost or absent or some way unable to save his people. And it is at this point that I think we find the ultimate plot twists. So recall that at the beginning of the previous chapter, it was God who brought a lawsuit to his people. And he brings them to court for violating, this, for violating the covenant. And at the beginning of that chapter, he commands them, plead your case, or in some, cha- or in some translations, defend yourself. In other words, justify your actions before me and why you should not be punished. And to this, of course, Judah has no defense. She is guilty and will face judgment. However, as we move now into chapter 7 here, it's at this point, as, as Judah's enemies surround, mock, um, and, and watch for Judah's final demise, that, that we see God then, then walk across, effectively across the courtroom, and he begins to defend the guilty. God will defend his people. Only God's intervention will rescue his people from their due due punishment. Notice that that they are going to stay under punishment until God defends their case. There's not not a sense that that God's punishment runs out and then they get restored. It's only once God comes over and pleads their case that this punishment and judgment will end. And only by God's restoration will his people stand again in the light and triumph over their enemies. So Micah foresees this day of deliverance and restoration in verses 11, and 13, or 11 to 13. The day for building your walls will come, the day for extending your boundaries. In that day, people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, even from Egypt to the Euphrates, from the sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. The earth will become desolate because of its inhabitants as a result of their deeds. And so this future day, Micah provides... Or, or, kind of gives us three things that will occur. Uh, first, the dominion of Israel is expanded. And the term that's translated walls uh, refers to, the, to kind of the loose, loose stone walls that would have been, designated, that would have been used to designate uh, a, a property boundary and not so much referring to city walls as the N- uh, NLT might reference. And so um, um, this expansion is not merely a territorial description, but a communication of a time when God's glory and power is going to be displayed through the restoration of his people. Second, this expanded kingdom will be needed, it seems, as peoples from all around will come to the restored and mighty land of Judah. The description is is rightly, I think, compared to chapter 4, where it says the nations will pour into Jerusalem to hear God's word. This connection uh, further, I think, solidifies and argues that, that Matthew's vision here is one of esch- or has an esch- esch- eschatological nature. He's not really he's not just referring um, to uh, the uh, the return of the exiles. Um, those who want to interpret uh, the rebuilding of the walls might see that as as being fulfilled under Nehemiah, rebuilding the walls of, J- of Jerusalem. Though, like I said, that that term uh, has a has a Different, it was usually different, used in, in the sense of a boundary wall. 
And so I think here we see Micah is, is uh, once again presenting us a vision very similar to what we saw in chapter 4. Uh, this is a picture of what things will happen in the, in the last days or in that day. It is far more expansive than simply a return from the exile. And then third, the land outside of the expanded kingdom will become a wasteland. And this description is often, a, a, this, this, uh, this description of, of desolation um, is often applied to uh, what's left after a, a city is, is conquered and ravaged, brought to ruin. And it's really to the point of, of barely being inhabitable, if at all. And so only, tho- or, uh, only those that do not go up to Judah who are left behind, um, it says, uh, are left and their godless actions will bring desolation and ruin. So filled with hopeful expecta- expectation, Micah offers a prayer to God, and then, then we see God respond, and this begins in uh, verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock that is your possession. They live alone in a woodland surrounded by pastures. Let them, and let them graze in Bashan and Iliad as in, as in ancient times. And so here, once again, we see, I think, an echoing of chapter 5 now. Micah intercedes with God uh, that, he would, that God would once again shepherd his people. And this is uh, exactly what uh, he had prophesied in, in chapter 5. And so Micah here uh, describes Judah as this flock kind of lost in this forest or brushland. Um, and they, they are indeed a need of, or people in need of rescue and guidance. And though they are surrounded in, in, in this lush pasture land, the nation wanders alone, unable to find their way unable to save themselves. And so likewise, Judah lives in this promised land, the land of milk and honey, and yet they seem to be trapped in their own sin. Micah pleads with God that he would restore uh, them to life and abundance. And this is exemplified by the ideal grazing land that was, that was uh, uh, northeast of the Jordan River, the former lands of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh. And so God responds, uh, Micah records God's response in verse 15. It says, I will perform miracles for them as in the days days of your exodus from the land of Egypt. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick the dust like a snake. They will come trembling out of their hiding places like reptiles slithering on the ground. They They will tremble in the presence of the Lord your God. They will stand in awe of you. The seminal event uh, in the Old Testament was the Exodus. It was during that time that God most powerfully, miraculously, and obviously rescued and shepherded his people all the way to the Promised Land. And so this new day of deliverance, God says, will feature, feature wonders and marvels on par with what was seen during the Exodus. It can be viewed as a new Exodus. And in response to God's marvelous deeds, Micah uh, provides a, a series of reactions from the other, na- from the other nations as they witness uh, God's power. So like Egypt, who, who eventually surren- surrendered to the power of, Hebrews God, or of the Hebrews' God, this new Salvation Day will also bring nations to their knees. God's deliverance of his people will demonstrate, or will be, will, will dem- or will be in such power that the nations will feel guilt for placing any strength or any dependence in their supposed strength. This uh, placing of the hands over their mouths, the, the, their mouths 
the deafness of their ears, are expressions of all awe and disbelief at the works of God. And when it, des- when it describes the nations as licking the ground, this is, this is a sign of, of, of how low they have bowed before him, a sign of humility. And, and they're, they're trembling. Uh, in trembling, they come out of their, their futile hideouts in response to God's glorious power. Godless people and godless nations may thrive for a while. Sin may cripple God's people for a time. But in the end, God will overcome all his enemies. All nations will bow before the supreme God. And then in his final passage, Micah praises God for his unfailing faithfulness as he deals with one last enemy. Who is like you, or who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnants of his, of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl, our all, hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to God, or you will be faithful to Jacob, and show love to Abraham as you pledged an oath to our ancestors in days long ago. So Mike uh, rightfully confused, or rightfully begins this concluding doxology by recognizing that the peerlessness of God, there is in fact uh, no one like God. And this is going to be recognized by all nations and people. This is also a play on Micah's name, which means who is like Yahweh. And then Micah elaborates on, on the features that make God so matchless. First, he pardons and forgives. The word behind, the word par- or the word behind pardon uh, means to lift up or, or to carry low, to take away. And then the term translated forgive is actually the Hebrew words pass over. And so notice that both these terms require God to address the, the presence of sin. He's not merely promising to, to overlook. He's not uh, promising to for, uh, forget our sin or to, to merely kind of put us on probation. But he's going to address it head on. Rather, he's going to take our sin away. And blood was, and I think hinted at here, will be required to pass over just as... Uh, uh, just as he passed over the Israelites in Egypt. And it's at that point the enslaving power of sin will be brought under the subjection of God and cast away, never to return. God will conquer our sin and our rebellion because he delights in showing mercy. He does not stay or remain angry forever. And here the Hebrew term, uh, Hebrew term for, for remain or stay is the same one that's used um, in describing how one is uh, hardened of heart. And so for all the reason and justification that man has given God to become resolute or hardened in his anger, yet God still has the default desire to show his unfailing love and uh, uh, mercy. And so while he stands uh, in the midst of a culture that has forgotten God, Micah rests his hope on the God who will not forget his people and his promises. God promised that uh, promised to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through you. The sinfulness and the forgetfulness of man will not uh, void or undo the promises of God. Micah recognized the enduring, trustworthy word of God, and has allowed has allowed him, or, and this has allowed him to live with hope. And it's the same hope and promise that we hold on to today. For as Paul wrote. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, 
heirs according to the promise. Heavenly Father, we, we rejoice that we can, uh, gather around your word. Uh, Lord, that we do not have to worry about uh, who opens up the door next. Um, Lord, we, we thank you for that uh, freedom still. We thank you for uh, who you are, that we can, even, even as we stand in the midst of, of a culture not unlike Micah's, uh, a culture that seeks its own desires to follow its own passions, that seeks to, to remove you, or at least to ignore you, to forget about you. Uh, Lord, I, I thank you for the example of Micah, um, that as he turns our focus back to your promises, to your trustworthiness, to your faithfulness. Uh, Lord, <laughs> we thank you that no, nothing man can do will upset your promises. Uh, Lord, that we can still cling to him after all the darkness that we see around you, that we still have the light we can focus on. And I just pray that uh, indeed we would be watchmen for this, uh, for this nation. Uh, Lord, not only showing and, and warning people of judgment, but also pointing them to the light that is on the horizon. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.